Electricast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, I just wanted to let you know before we start that this episode of Star Trek Voyager discusses rape. Now, I won't be talking about it in this episode of the podcast, but I wanted you to be aware of the content in the show. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Have you ever gone camping before? But not like, not like tent and sleeping bag camping. More like dumped in the middle of the woods with nothing but the clothes on your back kind of camping. Because that's what happens to the Voyager crew in this one. And Janeway, oh, Janeway absolutely shines. She'll demonstrate how to keep people motivated and positive and how to lead them through survival. All this in the epic two-parter that closes the second season and kicks off the third season of Voyager, Basics, Parts 1 and 2. We're doing some botany with Peter DeVries? It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of Sapu that thoughts acquire speed. The lips acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. Okay, some really important table setting here. The Voyager crew, if you remember, is made up of Starfleet and Maquis. One of the Maquis is this person, Lon Suter. We first meet Suter earlier in the second season of Voyager. He's a Betazoid, and he has long suffered from nearly uncontrollable violent urges. I used to think the only talent I had was a talent for killing. And is portrayed by the wildly talented Brad Dourif. His violent urges made him a threat to the Voyager crew, which ultimately led to Tuvok performing a mind meld with him and then coaching him to, to keep those urges, keep those urges at bay. There's a lot more to dive into, but we'll save that for the actual episode where all that stuff happens. But in this scene, we're seeing Suter working on one of his new hobbies, botany. He expresses that he wants to do more to help out around the ship. He and Tuvok talk through some ideas, and then Tuvok commits to advocating for him to Janeway. On the bridge, they receive a communication from Seska. Hello? If someone says something bad about you, you'd want me to tell you, right? No. Oh, there's a lot of table setting on this one, too. I don't want to give a lot away because there are a number of episodes leading to this, so, so I'll keep it really brief. Seska was another member of the Maquis group that joined Voyager. She left and joined up with the Kazon. The Kazon are the aliens that Voyager fought uh, back in Caretaker, if you remember that. She also, at one point, stole some of Chakotay's DNA and, well impregnated herself. Okay, I think I think that's all you need on Seska to understand her role in this episode. So in the communication, she shows the baby, 
which is his son, from when she stole Chakotay's DNA and shares that she's been kicked out of the Kazon because the Maj, uh, Kulla, he's the leader of the Kazon, saw that the baby wasn't his. She says that she and the baby are in danger and she is begging Chakotay for help. And Chakotay is not cool with this. He's venting to Janeway. He feels compelled to do something, right? But but it, he doesn't want to put the whole ship in danger over it. So Janeway says, If we do this, we do it together. But she also acknowledges that Seska knows how they operate, knows that Janeway wouldn't put an individual from her team in harm's way. And then Chakotay makes me question every positive thought that I've ever had about him. Do you think it's a trap? Um, hey dude, uh, is water wet? <sighs> Come on, man. Wow. Well, he's he's still conflicted over the whole thing after they talk. So Janeway tells him to take some time and think it over. They're not in any real hurry. So in his quarters, he gets his medicine bundle out and he goes on a vision quest. Now, we've already talked about how poorly Voyager handled Native American culture. So I'll just say that these two episodes don't help at all in that area. This next scene even sprinkles in some some pretty harmful ableist language to top it all off. But 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 this little piece here is what moves the episode forward. See, in his vision, he talks with his father, and his dad offers some valuable wisdom. He is innocent. And he is a child of our people. So he calls the senior staff together, and they meet to discuss plans to go after Seska. There's a nearby Talaxian mining colony that Neelix has reached out to, and, and they're willing to help when they're nearby. They start talking uh, strategy. They figure that the Kazon will attack, right? It's all but guaranteed. So Harry Kim and the doctor collaborate and they come up with a really cool idea. They propose creating an illusion, right? They're going to combine sensor echoes and holograms to make it look like they have a small group of ships flying with them. The only real concerns with the plan are that it will be a drain on power and that it's only going to last as long as it takes the Kazon to scan the holograms. But they figure it's the best they got. So they agree and get to work. But not before Chakotay expresses his gratitude. Uh, excuse me, but there is one more thing. Thank you. They reach the coordinates and find a shuttle with one Kazon aboard. They beam him directly to sickbay and he is seriously injured. Chakotay recognizes him and he shares that Seska... Well, Seska's dead. He says that Maj Kola had her killed and that he took the child to be raised as a servant. From what scans to the shuttle and the doctor's examination shows, what can be confirmed from this guy's story is is confirmed. That is like, it's clear there, there was an attack on his shuttle. There was violence inside of it. And so should be telling the truth, but Chakotay doesn't quite believe him. After he recovers, the Kazon helps them plot a safe path to where they believe the child's been taken to. He even gives them the Kazon command codes. Those are like the master passwords that show all the defenses and all the, the Kazon ship positions. With that, the Voyager crew know exactly where to go and exactly what to prepare for. Their path is going to take them out of range of the Talaxian colony, though. While on their way, Tuvok and Suter meet with Janeway to, to hear his proposal. He's a very generous host when she joins him and shows her what he'd like to do to help improve agricultural output on the ship. She's impressed and asks for some time to consider it. He gets frustrated with her non-answer and starts getting pretty pretty verbally aggressive. But Tuvok cuts him off and he takes a moment to breathe and he regains his composure. 
Now, this may not seem like that big of a deal, but believe me, it is. It it not only plays later in this episode here, but it also shows just how much progress Suter's made since we first meet him. He See, the Suter before Tuvok would have attacked Janeway just outright. So, so good on him. On their way to the place where the kid's supposed to be, they decide to confine the Kazon to his quarters. After they do that and have been traveling for a while, they end up surrounded by eight Kazon Predator-class ships. Time to put their hologram distraction idea to the test. And it works! The ships split up, four going after the holograms and four left for Voyager. And the fight is on. As the bridge crew handles the battle, Torres manages the holograms. Totally effective. Everything's going great. That is, till something gets a little crossed. <laughs> and she ends up projecting the doctor out into the middle of the firefight. She fixes it, and then he says, I told you we should have run one last systems check. In his quarters, the Kazon takes his toenail off, and then he injects it into his arm. Hmm. Flashbacks to our last episode, Letha. Well, he has a rough bodily reaction to this injection, and he, just like the Vulcan in Letha, explodes, completely blows up. He's taken out a primary plasma conduit and blown a hole right into Suter's wall. The plasma conduit being down causes power failures and the holograms all disappear. All the Kazon ships are focused on Voyager now and they are taking a serious beating. Warp drive is down and now, now they're sitting ducks. Tom Paris offers to get into a shuttle and says, Captain, if I can get a shuttle through the crossfire, I can go back and bring the Talaxians to help us. Janeway agrees and he's on his way. Oof, that shuttle has taken a lot of fire. They end up losing communications with it and, oh my God. It looks like it looks like Paris goes down. We go from bad to worse real quick. Kazon, begin boarding the ship. Begin evacuation. Initiate self-destruct sequence. Janeway's gonna try and save what she can. Scrap the ship, but the damage to the ship is so severe that the computer can't start the self-destruct sequence. So Janeway just stops. She looks com- completely lost. And then the Kazon are on the bridge. Hold your fire. Janeway surrenders. They herd the crew together as the Kazon ships surround Voyager. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is where I thought they were going to end the episode. I mean, what a great cliffhanger, right? But no, it continues. The turbo lift of the bridge opens as the crews huddled together on their knees and surrounded by armed Kazon. Maj, Kulla, and Seska come barreling out of the turbo lift. Hello, everyone. She has Chakotay's son. May he grow up never knowing the contempt his father has for his mother. And Kulla says he'll take the child as his own. Janeway stands up and tries tries to talk with Kula, but he smacks her across the face and then leans in way hard into some serious misogyny. What is it about the women from your quadrant? They're sent to a cargo bay, and then they sweep the ship for the rest of the crew, locking them all up together. On their way out, we actually get this really cool moment where Seska starts breastfeeding the baby on the bridge. Despite their gang-like mentality and aggressive misogynist tendencies, the Kazon seem to be a lot more forward-thinking than a lot of employers and major corporations, well, at least in the United States. Excuse me, do you really think it's appropriate to breastfeed your baby here in public? As they sweep into sickbay, the doctor hides away. Computer, activate medical holographic recall, set for 12 hours. Mark. They report back that they've accounted for all but two of the crew and note that a shuttle is missing. Kula says, well, they destroyed the shuttle. So I guess, I guess that really is it for Tom Paris. Wow, I figured they'd do more with him, right? But Seska doesn't buy it. 
and she insists that they send out a search party to confirm that the shuttle was destroyed. Good, because I don't really buy it either. Now let's go by the numbers real quick. We can assume that one of the two unaccounted for people is Paris, and we can also assume that the Kazon think that both he and the other person were on the shuttle. Okay, we gotta keep track of this stuff. The ship arrives at a planet and they land on Voyager. It's a cool thing about Voyager that we haven't talked about yet on the Starfleet Leadership Academy, but, but it's set up to, to land on planets. It's got landing gear and everything. They don't use it a lot, but I don't know, it's kind of cool. It's really cool, actually, visually, to, to see the ship down on the surface. The Kazon unload all the crew and they take all of their technology, comm badges, tricorders, phasers, you name it, they take it. All they're left with are their uniforms, nothing more. Janeway leads them all away, saying they need to find water and they need to find shelter. She pulls a small group of people together and tells them that they'll each be leading a team. And then, and then she reminds us why she is absolutely amazing. Make it clear to all your people that we expect to be rescued. Neelix, of course, is the naysayer here and questions if this is a good idea. And Janeway shuts him right up. You're the morale officer, Neelix. You give me an answer. Seriously, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it. don't get me wrong. It's good for people to question their leaders, especially when it seems like they might be encouraging you to to lie. But Neelix is the morale officer. Keeping people's spirits high is literally his job. Ugh. Have have I told you just how much I can't stand this guy? Janeway keeps on it. It's very important that this crew be given a sense of hope. That's our most important job right now. Then they start breaking out jobs. Food, fuel, tools, weapons, shelter, stuff for survival, right? Somehow, for some reason, oh man, and I just don't understand this reason, especially given what we just saw, but well, Neelix is going to be leading one of the teams. Delta team with me. <sighs> what is that? We'll just call them the red shirt team. As they search, there's some minor earthquake trembles. I guess the planet must be young and the land masses are still forming. And then they hear more rumbling. They all turn and look and it's Voyager powering up for takeoff. As they watch it fly away, they see the native inhabitants of the planet. Very, very primitive looking humanoids. Cull and Seska are literally just leaving them there to die. The doctor reactivates and then he assesses the situation. Lon Suter climbs out from a ventilation shaft. And they're all that's left on Voyager. Will they be able to take the ship back? Will the crew survive the unstable, primitive planet? Is Tom Paris even alive? Tune in after three and a half months to find out. Oh, never mind. Yeah, no, we're going to dive into it right now. Part two starts with us rejoining the stranded crew. Janeway's team is looking for shelter. One of the crew members, Samantha Wildman, recently had a baby, Naomi, who we actually met in our episode on Voyager Homestead. Well, here, Naomi is an infant, and Samantha's struggling with her. Chakotay dives in to help and immediately implements Fremen water discipline. Perspiring wastes water. They find a cave that has a good space for them to settle into. We join up with the red shirt squad, you know, Delta team, Neelix's team. They find a cave with humanoid bones outside the opening. Neelix thinks the bones can be used as tools or weapons and tells Hogan, This is gonna take its course, brother. Bro, brothers, bro, brothers, brother, brothers, brother. A regular on the series to collect them. As he's picking them up, a creature launches out of the cave and 
And just like that, Hogan's gone. Way to go, Neelix. We join Tom Paris, and he's repairing the shuttle. He's alive! The Kazon search parties have found him, but he's in bad shape. I don't have time for this! He outmaneuvers him and is able to destroy the raider. He's working to get back on course to the Talaxians. On the planet, Neelix is beating himself up, and Janeway steps in. Stop it. There's no time to worry about blame. She says that effective immediately, the tunnels are off limits and asks for clear safety protocols to be established. Tuvok reports they have rudimentary weapons, and Chakotay is setting up stills to collect water. <laughs> wow, man. This dude is a true Fremen at heart. Well, Neelix, oh my man, ugh. Neelix just continues to disappoint. He was out there with his red shirt squad looking for food, and he couldn't find anything of nutritional value. So Janeway runs over, flips over a rock, finds a mess of worms, and says, this is what's on the menu from here on out. <sighs> Seska calls for the doctor and has him examine the baby. She also lets him know that Kazon are in control of the ship and, and wonders if that will be a problem for him. I'm programmed to provide medical care to anyone who needs it. And then he drops a bomb. Your child has Cardassian DNA strands here and Kazon DNA here. In the case of six-month-old Hope, Corey, you are not the <laughs> The kid is Kula's, not Chakotay's. Seska's not okay with this. Disturbed, she, she rushes out of sickbay. Doctor starts panicking. He, did, he doesn't know what to do. I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. He starts digging through records and finds that Suter, Suter's still on board. So he contacts him and directs him to come to sickbay. He then pulls a top-notch counterinsurgent move and has the computer delete any trace or signature of Suter so the Kazon can't find him like he did. <laughs> That's smooth. In the cave... Kim and Torres come back, having found eggs and a bunch of vegetables. You know, it's like, it's like Neelix isn't even trying. The crew are all working to try and start fires, find water, and keep warm. This sequence really reminded me of my early training in the Navy. Back in the day, we had these correspondence-like courses for required training for promotions and stuff. They had a fantastic music theory series, actually, but 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 what's important was in the the courses for promotion, there's a lot of survival stuff in there. You know, like the exact kind of stuff they were doing in this scene. You know, anytime you're at sea or in space, I guess, there's a chance for disaster and needing to live off the land, and that's it. It's cool to see that aspect of the military survived into the 24th century. Neelix decides the buddy system doesn't apply to him, and he goes off in the middle of the night looking for firewood. Once Kess notices that he's gone, she chases after him. Does... Does anybody out there want to guess what happens next? Hmm? Anybody? Hmm? Any, any thoughts? Any ideas? Well, if you guessed that the native inhabitants kidnapped both of them, <laughs> hooray, you're the big winner. We see Kess get nabbed and dragged away from the camp the crew's set up. Back in space, Paris is within calm range of the Talaxians. He convinces them to help him out, but, but they're apprehensive. With Voyager, the Kazon have a dramatically superior force. Paris assures him that he has a plan, that he can use his knowledge of Voyager to their advantage and, you know, level the playing field. After they hang up, he says, One hour. I should be able to come up with some kind of plan in one hour. Suter and the doctor finally meet up. The doctor's whole plan is basically for Suter to just start killing Kazon. But Suter isn't okay with that. He's so conflicted. He's worked so hard. I'm almost at peace with myself. 
The doctor sticks to it, though. Even says that Tuvok would apparently recommend it, too. Suda remains silent as the doctor explains why this is the best plan and that those two people, just them, they're the only hope the Voyager has. Chakotay leads a small group to go after Neelix and Kess. They're armed with Tuvok's wooden spears and basic bows and arrows. We see the native people arguing and trying to decide what to do with Kess and Neelix. Chakotay just walks into the middle of it, unarmed, and attempts to communicate with the one that looks like the Elder. And oof, he does a really good job. Listen to the sound of my voice, and you'll know that I mean you no harm. He's calm. He keeps his arms down, like he's the picture of non-threatening. The Elder ends up offering a trade of one of their people for Kess. Chakotay refuses and has Kess join him as they slowly walk away. But Neelix, ah, man, in a theme that I'm sure you're tired of at this point, but Neelix just doesn't let up. No, that is unacceptable. This gets them all upset, and after Chakotay and Kess get just a few steps away, the native people charge after them. Chakotay's group was hiding, and they pop up, they go into defense mode, and the chase is on. They end up finding one of the tunnels, like the one Hogan was killed outside of, and they rush inside. It's their only safe haven. On Voyager, the Kazon are struggling to keep up repairs. You know, it's almost as if somebody is running around the ship sabotaging systems. Hmm. Well, Seska calls for a deck-by-deck sweep of Jeffrey's tubes, conduits, and ventilation shafts. Suter in sickbay asks the doctor for a Thoron generator. It's an old Maquis trick that they use to hide from Federation scanners. So he grabs a generator, goes in search of some weapons, and to go bust up some more systems. Baby Naomi Wildman is not doing well. She's got a fever. There isn't really much they can do. Janeway just recommends being sure that she has enough water. She notes that Chakotay's team should have returned by now. So she puts another team together to go looking for them. Now, the natives may be primitive, but they are not stupid. They know these tunnels well. So they start a fire, and they fan the smoke into the tunnels. They're trying to smoke the crew out, so they keep heading deeper and deeper into the tunnels. Shockingly, they stumble into the nest of one of the monsters that killed Hogan. It's asleep, so they slowly start sneaking past it. One of the teams slips, though, and wakes the creature. They have no choice but to turn back and head towards the entrance. Janeway and her team come upon the natives. She asks for the fastest runners in the team, and they start taunting them. Once again, the chase is on. While they run back towards the camp, Janeway and the remaining team take care of the fire and start hollering into the tunnels. Chakotay, Tuvok! The creature's chasing them as they make their exit. Tuvok stops. He and Chakotay cause a cave-in to block the creature from getting to them. Everybody makes it out, and they head back to the camp. The Kazon are searching every nook and cranny of the ship. One comes across Suter, who just stares at the Kazon coldly. A quick cut to sickbay and Paris is reaching out to the doctor on the emergency medical channel, which is a thing I just learned exists on a starship. He's come up with a plan. He says he and the Talaxians will be attacking, but he needs the doctor to take out part of the backup phaser systems. As the doctor considers his strategy, Suter returns to sickbay, dragging the dead Kazon with him. Suter collapses to the floor, huddled in a fetal-like position. The doctor comes up and calls for some medication to try and help him. No, no drugs. I just need to breathe. See the light that is my breath. Brad Dourif just 
beautifully portrays a very, a very broken man breaking even more. Seska learns that there are Thoron particles blocking the scans and immediately sniffs out the Maquis strategy. That's an old Maquis trick to fool tricorders. The crew on the planet are working through their first diplomatic strategy session. Tuvok recommends arming everyone and training them to handle the handmade weapons. But Janeway says, We may have to coexist with these aliens a long time. And wants to find a peaceful resolution. Chakotay agrees. As they're debating, the seismic activity increases and a nearby volcano begins erupting. They evacuate the area, but time is short. The attack on Voyager has begun. Seska blasted the hollow emitters in sickbay so the doctor can't materialize. She also shut off all Starfleet voice commands. The doctor was able to leave a message for Suter, though. This means, of course, that the fate of Voyager now depends solely on you. He's hesitant. He's worried. But the doctor tells him that he's supremely confident in him, that he trusts him. He even says that he's recorded a separate log in case the worst happens that details Suter's heroism. This pep talk from the doctor gives him the resolve that he needs. Janeway and crew run into the native people as they're evacuating. One of their group is stranded on a rock in the middle of the lava flow. She's trapped. Without hesitation, Chakotay leaps across the lava to the rock, picks her up in a fireman's carry, and brings her to safety, back to her people. This, this was the olive branch they were looking for. This changes everything. Two groups join together and continue fleeing the lava. Paris's plan works. He keeps the shuttle in the sensor blind spots of Voyager and focuses on the phaser arrays. Suter heads into engineering and blasts everyone. Just a mess of dead Kazon when he's done. Brad Dourif again showing how amazing and perfect for this role he is. I'm one of the most notorious slashers in history. He looks over the carnage and a look of disappointment so heavy, so deep comes across his face. It's so perfect, like when you're watching it, you can feel it in your soul. He climbs over the bodies and is about to take out the phaser backup when one of the Kazon, in their dying moment, blasts him with a phaser. As he crumples to the ground, he completes his mission, and then he dies. Paris is allowing himself to be targeted. That causes them to switch to their backup systems. Fire! And it overloads all of Voyager's systems. Suter got it done. The Talaxians begin beaming over to take the ship back. Seska tries to make it to the baby, but, but she dies as she makes her way to him. Kula, Kula rescues the baby and orders, Abandon ship. Paris and the Talaxians retake Voyager and start on the critical system repairs. The elder of the native people checks out Samantha Wildman's baby. He puts a poultice of some kind on her chest and she starts breathing more regularly. In the moment, it appears that these two very different groups of people can coexist. But as soon as that happens... Voyager lands on the planet's surface, and they're gone. Welcome back, Captain. Janeway's impressed with all that happened and praises Tom Paris, but he shares the wealth. Well done, Lieutenant. I had a lot of help. In sickbay, the Doctor and Tuvok stand over Suter's body and mourn him. They set a course. Destination, Alpha Quadrant. And are back on their way home. I really enjoyed this two-parter. It had a huge cliffhanger and took us through some fun journeys. From a real-world perspective, this was a significant moment for Voyager because longtime executive producer Michael Piller was leaving the series after this. From an in-universe perspective, a lot of people died. And this is the last we're going to see of the actual Kazon in the series. Come to Quark's Quark's Fun. Come right now. Don't walk. Run! 
Managing contracts and agreements is a pain. You have to track everything on your own. You have to set reminders for renewals and expiration dates, follow up with customers or vendors when they don't respond in time, and you need to keep stakeholders up to date. <sighs> it's just too much. Just getting started can be overwhelming because there are so many details involved. And if you make a mistake, like it could cost you serious money and lost revenue or worse, set you and your business up for failure. Well, I found a solution. Zapendo makes managing contracts easy by taking care of the hard stuff for you automatically. Like, it'll remind everyone on your team who needs to know about an upcoming contract renewal or an expiration date change. It will save you so much time that you would otherwise be wasting tracking down these details yourself. And thanks to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, you can save 15% when you decide to save time with Zapendo. Visit www.zapendo.com and enter the code SFLA when you subscribe. Zapendo gives the power to manage contracts, edit them on the fly, send for e-signature, manage expirations and alerts, and even more. And you can access it today by visiting zapendo.com. That's Z-A-P-E-N-D-O.com and use the offer code SFLA when you subscribe. You can also click the link in the show notes. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. I got to start with something that I think is just too much. Like Voyager, okay, Voyager is the only Starfleet ship around here at all. In earlier episodes, we learned the Kazon, while warp capable, are, are barely even playing the same game when it comes to technology, right? But somehow, somehow, they board the ship and Maj Kula just knows how to land it like he goes through all the orders in sequence like he's been running simulations for weeks and they spent like they spent a lot of time on this scene they made a very intentional point of showing us that he knew what he was doing why right like just show him take the ship and then show it landing eh, i don't know i'm probably being too nitpicky right here but listen before I go into this next part, before I dive into Neelix, I want to ask you to hold me accountable. My friend John with the Trek Profiles podcast, and I recommend you check that out. It's really good. Specifically, I think you should check out episode 51. But John has challenged my views on Neelix, and I've actively watched Voyager differently because of him. And absolutely, I've seen I've seen different different aspects to Neelix, right? So as I go into this, if I'm being unfair, please, please call me out. So here it is. He is, he's terrible. He is absolutely terrible in this episode. Who is the worst person you've ever met? Oh, gosh, I guess that's not totally fair. 
In his defense, he does connect Voyager with the Talaxian mining colony early on, and he does a good job trying to see if the Kazon they rescued from the shuttle is being honest or not. But outside of that, even, even his morale officer, right? He is nothing but doom and gloom. As the chef, he can't even find any food, but other people can. He, he doesn't follow basic security protocols, and he escalates relations with the native people to the, point, to the point that Tuvok is considering open warfare with them. Just, just terrible. Okay, one last gripe. What about the people that are native to the planet? Like a ship comes out of the sky, dumps some weirdos off, they try to kill each other, they find common ground. And then they fly off. You know, you know what I think would be really cool? As of the time of this recording, Discovery is in its fourth season. And they're in the, I don't know what, the they're in the 32nd century. It would be so cool if they somehow ran into these people again. But now, now the entire civilization is based on a religion where the main symbols are Voyager and Chakotay's face tattoo. Like... <laughs> How could this interaction not have long-lasting effects? All glory to the Hypnotoad. Okay, done griping. I've said this already, but Brad Dourif was perfect in this. So good. Seska is a really great character with a fun arc. It's always good to see both of them. And I don't, I don't really care much for the Kazon, but Maj Kula. Maj Kula is super cool. And what makes him so cool is totally Anthony DeLongas. I hope I'm saying his name right. Either way, this guy is great. He is just slathered in gross makeup for this role, but he oozes personality. He's comfortable in the role and is really having a good time. We don't get to see it in this episode, but Anthony's background is in stunts and fight choreography, which, which honestly is probably why you'd likely recognize him for his iconic role as Blade in Masters of the Universe opposite Dolph Lundgren. Or as Ketchum in Roadhouse. 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 But these guest stars are so good. They add so much to this show. In the scope of Voyager, this really communicated that we were moving on, moving forward, leaving some things behind, and progressing through the quadrant. I think... I think that was really important at the time, but it also feels very natural in watching through the series now. The last thing I want to touch on is Suter and his portrayal of someone experiencing trauma and struggling with their mental health. This was really well done. I also really appreciated the doctor's nearly gross misunderstanding of what he was experiencing. I thought it was actually a pretty accurate picture of how a doctor, you know, like a like a general physician or or maybe even a primary care doctor or an emergency room doctor might treat somebody like Suter. Mr. Suter, if Lieutenant Tuvok were here, I know he would tell you there are times when violence is required to defend yourself, to defend your ship, to defend your crew. Despite that, Suter was able to use the tools and interventions that Tuvok had provided to help him cope. And that moment, that moment when he unleashes hell on the Kazon, when he when he really understands what just happened, oh, what a powerful piece of film. So good. Command codes verified. We're going to spend some time talking through one little line Janeway delivers near the end of the first part of this. She says that offering hope is their top priority. Well, guess what? If you're in a leadership position, same goes for you. We're also going to talk about Tom Paris and how he helps others receive the recognition they deserve, along with Chakotay's attempts to connect with the people native to the planet they were stranded on. 
The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. It's very important that this crew be given a sense of hope. That's our most important job right now. Polly Campbell wrote a great article for Psychology Today in 2019 called Why Hope Matters. I'll link it in the show notes. She writes that hope shows the possibility of something better and that it helps us to keep going. She references the work of researcher C.R. Snyder, who says that hope implies that there's the possibility of a better future. Now, what do you think that means to a bunch of contemporaries that were just stranded on a primitive planet with none of the technology they depend on to meet their most basic needs? Yeah, it's probably pretty important. Like, if I'm part of that team and I fully believe that this is my life now, I'm probably going to be really upset. I mean, not only am I on the other side of the galaxy, but now there is zero chance I'll ever get home. I'm alone, I'm cold, I'm hungry. Oh, and that that CGI monster over there? (laughs) Yeah, it's totally gonna eat me. Or, Or I can have hope. I can have hope that Voyager or someone will rescue me, which will let me get back to work moving back towards home. No, no, don't hear that. Don't, I did not say move along home. All right, that's that's a different episode. But where does hope come from? I think I think hope can come from a lot of places, right? Our hearts, our spirits, our imaginations. But often hope is formed or at least informed and reinforced by the leaders in our lives. Faith, religious leaders, political leaders, leaders in the media, even our leaders at work. We look to them and listen to them as they share their thoughts, their visions. Often, even just their reactions or general statements about a thing can influence our hope. In March of 2020, when the world began responding to COVID-19, I know my job changed. It's almost like Janeway was in my ear guiding me along, right? I thought of myself and the leaders I worked with as becoming... We became dealers in hope. Now, regardless of where you land on the political spectrum of COVID, we can all agree, right, that the world looked very bleak, especially in the middle of 2020, right? For a lot of us, we had to keep working. We had to stay on it. And that was really hard to do when every other tweet had more bad news, not just about COVID, but about the restrictions, responses to it. I mean, the news did little more than to squash, actively squash hope for even a moment of relief. So, so as leaders, that fell to us. Now, as I dive into this, please do not hear me say that leaders should lie or make light of situations. No, in fact, I'm going to be saying just the opposite. Leaders must be painfully honest. And we saw this with Janeway. She didn't gloss over any of the hardships. I mean, she was ready to start eating worms. In fact, side note, you know what would have really made that scene absolutely incredible? If it ended with her eating a mouthful of worms, just, you know, just getting in Neelix's face and chowing down on a bunch of Wrigley worms. This is our new normal, Neelix. Get on board. But when things aren't good, it's important for leaders to create that vision of hope. That's often a vision of a better future, like, you know, things will get better. So let's break down what she did here. First, she very quickly made an objective assessment of the situation. Yeah, 
They're stranded with nothing more than the jumpsuits on their backs, but, but she knows the doctor's still a factor and probably believes that maybe, possibly, Tom Paris is out there too. So there is a chance of rescue, even if it's not likely. Second, she relied on her survival training from the academy and in Starfleet to identify the tasks that needed to be done. She found and identified value-added work that had to be done by everyone that also gave people purpose. Finally, she spoke with the leaders she works with and gave them crystal clear instructions to create hope for people. Now, this is a model you can follow too. It's not hard, but it does require that you have both a realistic and an optimistic point of view. I like to think that some people are pragmatically optimistic, right? Focusing on the reality of the situation in front of them, but also being optimistic about the outcomes. I feel like that's Janeway. And then other people are optimistically pragmatic. That's me. I start with the belief that everything's cool. It's going to be okay. Then I pepper the reality in there. Honestly, either approach is fine, but both aspects are needed. Optimism and realism. But like Janeway, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, hopefully not as bad as being stranded on a planet, but when you're in a tough situation, in a crisis, you can step up your leadership game by following this model. Make an objective assessment of the situation. What's important here is to be objective. Do not let emotion influence you here. Don't panic or start letting your mind run down rabbit holes. Don't panic. Just observe and assess what is happening, and then identify what needs to be done. Are there critical immediate needs? Like, do you need to evacuate to a safe place? If you do, you take care of those things immediately. But then, like Janeway, identify meaningful tasks that the people around you can start doing. In a crisis, people need purpose. Well, really, I guess we, we always need purpose, right? But especially so in a crisis. When you're left to to just exist, you know, just sit and wait, or do something that is clearly useless and just busy work, that's when your mind starts making stuff up and going through worst-case scenarios. You give people purpose and value-added tasks, and that will help dramatically with the situation. Finally, work with your other leaders and develop a shared message. You can't be saying one thing and then have another leader on your team buying into the negativity, right? Like, think of the people you work with as a continuum, okay? No, no, not the Q continuum, but like, you know, generally, based on concepts like the Pareto principle, standard bell curve distributions, things like that. So if you think about people on that continuum, they generally fall into a 10-80-10 distribution, Ooh, listen to me getting all mathematical. This is the power of math, people! What that means is that in a crisis situation like this, 10% of the people will be panicking and playing out doomsday scenarios in their heads. 10% will be looking at the bright side of life. And 80% are going to go whichever way the wind blows. Now, if you and your leaders focus on the doomsday dreams and all that, the 80% will skew that way. But, and here's the real power in being a dealer in hope. If you focus on the good things, the, the possibilities, if you build and communicate hope, the 80% will skew that way too. So what would you rather have? 90% of the people around you believing the ship's going to sink? 
are 90% believing that lifeboats are on their way. We get a chance to see Janeway manage some situations and behaviors where the naysayers start doing their thing. The first is early on after they're stranded when Neelix doesn't think they should work to keep people's spirits up. Just, just for my own edification, let me say that again a little differently. Neelix, the morale officer, doesn't see the value in keeping people's spirits up. Do you really think it's likely that someone will find us, Captain? You're the morale officer, Neelix. You give me an answer. <sighs> Another time is after Hogan is killed by the creature. Another naysayer is trying to make this tragedy all about them. And that naysayer is, yep, you guessed it, Neelix once again. Well, Janeway tells him it's a waste of time to assign blame. They just need to get some security protocols in place and move forward. In both instances, she just shuts him down. No room to sow doubt. In a crisis, that is important. But Neelix does provide us some value here. He shows us some of the behaviors you'll see from the 10% that are living out a doomsday situation. He actively questions efforts to build up hope. He moves around a lot, right? There's a lot of motion. He looks like he's working, but he's not actually doing his job. Like, he couldn't find any food, for example, but Janeway, Kim, and Torres were all able to. And then he tries to make the situations about him. Hogan, a friend to a lot of people on the crew, has just died. And Neelix is making a big deal about himself and what he should or shouldn't have done. Without Janeway's strong leadership here, refocusing everyone on the important tasks at hand, Neelix would have started spinning more and more and would have pulled those 80% that just go the way the wind blows along with him. Now, there's a lot in this episode that we could talk about when it comes to Chakotay. And honestly, most of it is not good. But... That's all character stuff and some really bad advice the writers got around Native American culture. So we'll focus on the amazing things he did here. He, maybe more than anyone, saw the need to coexist peacefully with the Native people on the planet. When he went to rescue Neelix and Kess, for example, he could have come in, arrows blazing, and tried to take them by force. But instead, instead he was smooth and fantastic. Knowing they couldn't communicate verbally, he used body language and tone to set everyone at ease. His posture was non-threatening. He didn't get into the elder's space, and he kept his voice tone low, quiet, and soothing. If it weren't for Neelix blowing things out of proportion, I've got to believe that they would have come to a decent outcome here. Later in the episode, when they're running from the volcano, he risks his life leaping over lava to save one of the people that are stuck. What's remarkable in both these examples is that he risks his own personal safety. He gives something up, right? He was unarmed when he first interacted with them. I mean, they could have killed him without a second thought, but he knew he had to take that risk. That risk was Chakotay starting with trust, right? They can't communicate verbally, but because he started with trust in the only way he knew how, which was putting himself in danger, really, he had a path to a peaceful outcome. And then when he selflessly flew over hot lava, lava to save one person, he cemented what he laid down before. They were able to see that he cared enough about a relationship with them that he'd risk himself to achieve that. Now, again, like everything on the Starfleet Leadership Academy, you can apply this too. Hopefully, you won't have to carry someone over flowing lava, but hey, right, anything's possible. 
But in the workplace and in our relationships, we can apply these lessons too. Don't assume an outcome to an interaction. Start with trust and don't be afraid to risk yourself. A friend of mine calls this idea ego surrender. I love that. When we walk into an interaction and we're worried about how we're going to look, right? Our ego, we'll do whatever we need to to protect it. But if we're not worried about that, if we surrender our ego, then we can be open to listening, really communicating, be open to actually and really connecting. The last point I want to touch on is at the end of these episodes. They've successfully retaken the ship and are about to head on their way. Janeway praises Paris for doing the impossible. Now, it would have been super easy and even kind of in character for him to accept that praise and feel good about it, but he doesn't. He immediately acknowledges the efforts and sacrifice of others. I had a lot of help. The Talaxians, the Doc, Mr. Suter. There's this really weird psychological thing that happens with praise. I don't want to pretend that I understand it at all, but I, but I do have a grasp on what it kind of means. When it comes to praise, there are many kinds, but I'm going to hit on two of them. There's the kind of praise that is directed at you and only you, and the kind that is directed at you, but is really, really meant to acknowledge a group effort. So the directed at just you kind of praise. So I'm a drummer, right? And sometimes after playing a gig or something, someone in the band or the audience will tell me I did a great job or something like that. Now, that happens just sometimes, I said, not, not too often. <laughs> but if you're anything like me, you immediately deflect that praise and either say something self-deprecating like, oh, thanks, <laughs> guess I got lucky tonight, or you will pass that praise on to someone else. Oh, thanks, but you know I couldn't have done it without these other great musicians. Now, I do this. When I do this, I do it with the intention of being humble, right? Does that resonate with anybody out there? I don't want to be like, yeah, hey, you're right. <laughs> I did do a great job. <laughs> but when you do those things, go self-deprecating or pass it on to somebody else, it, it actually diminishes the praise and it makes the person feel bad for offering it. So instead of that, instead of, instead of that kind of false humility that happens there, just, just say thank you. That's it. Nothing more. Thank you and shut your mouth. That simple. Now, the other kind of praise, the praise that's given to you but is directed at a group, that's, that's what we see here with Tom Paris. And like Tom Paris, you accept the praise, but you immediately spread it through the group. And here's the weird psychological part of that, right? So when you do that, it's not like you're getting the praise, sharing it with others, and losing it. No, and in, in, in this situation, everyone benefits, even the person offering the praise. So you take that one piece of praise and you turn it into countless pieces. It's a, <laughs> it's a total loaves and fishes kind of situation. But the person offering it even feels really good because they see the impact they've made. And the people you work with feel good because they've been acknowledged for their contribution. But the art, the art comes in discerning which type of praise you're receiving. My advice there is to think of the thing you're being praised for. Is it your performance, like the drums, or, or maybe a report you did, or a presentation you made? Or is it something bigger? Janeway, Janeway praising Tom for evading the Kazon in the shuttle, for example, is a thank you situation, right? Oh, thanks, yeah, I, I, I did that thing in the shuttle. But Janeway praising Tom for retaking Voyager 
that's a lot bigger. And that, that praise goes to everyone. Whew, that's a long one. <laughs> I really enjoyed it though, and I'm glad that I got to watch it with you. Hey, I would so appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review the Starfleet Leadership Academy in the podcast app you're listening to right now. It really helps other people discover the podcast. And you can follow me on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff T. as in Thoron Particles, A-K-I-N. And I'd like to invite you to join the Starfleet Leadership Academy podcast group on Facebook. Computer. What are we going to watch next time? Working. Oh, sweet. We hit a Lower Decks episode. Now, when I added Lower Decks to the random episode generator, I really need to think of a better name for that thing. What ideas do you have for it? Let me know. Let's name the random episode generator. But when I added Lower Decks, I said that when it came up, we'd do the pilot first, and then we'll take them randomly from there. So our next episode is the first episode of the first season, Second Contact. Oh, this is going to be fun. I enjoy this series a lot, and I'm excited to share the many, many great takeaways and lessons it offers. But until then, Ex Astra Scientia! Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the set? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.